In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Chloe Poynton and Ferris Nator, who founded and lead Article One. Article One helps the world's leading technology companies manage their human rights and sustainability risks. Today, we will hear about how Chloe and Ferris have advised some of the world's largest technology companies, including Facebook and Microsoft, on enhancing their oversight of human rights risks. Welcome to the ESG Beat. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, Amelia. So, Ferris, let's start with Article One's mission. Can you describe what you are aiming to do? Yes, thank you. Um, at Article One, we help the world's leading companies and institutions become more successful through ethical management and respect for human rights. And so what that means is where we believe that companies can um, succeed if they effectively integrate um, considerations of human rights and sustainability and ethics into all policies and processes and decisions they make um, as part of their operations. And we work to empower and enable uh, the internal human rights champions at those companies to do this um, integration effectively. Okay, terrific. And um, now let's move to each of your roles. Chloe, what's your role at Article One? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having us uh, again. So Ferris and I founded the firm in 2015. So we just celebrated our five-year anniversary. Um, and so we lead the company both in terms of setting the strategy and overall growth plans, but really focused as well on actually doing the work. Say so we have a little bit of a different focus between the two of us. So my background is much more traditional human rights work. Um, spent a lot of time overseas working with various NGOs and, and multilateral organizations. And so I lead probably a little bit more of the field-based work, the country-level impact assessments and so on, whereas Ferris has more of a, a kind of traditional business and human rights background and does some of the strategy. Okay, terrific. So I wanted to move on to some of your initiatives. At a high level, can you describe Article One's key initiatives? Excellent. Well, I can start um, with that and, and Chloe uh, jump in here as well. But um, much of our work is focused on human rights uh, strategy and human rights due diligence. So we work with companies to um, achieve kind of the ideal state of rights aware decision making, where every time someone in the company makes a decision that could impact human rights, we want that person to be aware of uh, those human rights impacts and decide accordingly, right? And so what that looks like is we do human rights impact assessments um, at different um, levels of the company, sometimes uh, considering all of their global operations, sometimes it's specific uh, to one product or one market um, or one function of their, of their business, and then address the findings of those assessments through strengthened policies and processes or sometimes new policies and management systems. So that's on the human rights side. We also have a, a very fast growing practice we call responsible innovation, which is really about in embedding ethics and ethical decision-making in product development and product design, um, primarily in the technology sector. So that can include defining engineering requirements for human rights, for example, right? So how should a, an engineering team developing a new product think from the very kind of early ideation stage all the way through the product 
life cycle? How can they think about human rights risk? How they can anticipate that? That's uh, kind of a key part of our responsible innovation work. And then we have a sustainability practice that looks at more kind of traditional corporate responsibility initiatives in the company. So we do materiality analyses. We help help companies engage with uh, stakeholders and them with their reporting and communication. Uh, in the area of corporate responsibility or um, ESG, to use the term uh, that is uh, in the title for this uh, for this podcast. Uh, terrific. So, so I wanted to turn to Chloe. You have a, um, a lot of experience in business and human rights, and I wanted to get your insights as to how the business community's approach to human rights has changed. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a fascinating journey. I um, started working on business and human rights in 2011, which was when the UN guiding principles on business and human rights were first released. And that's been um, basically the guiding document for corporate action in regards to human rights. And I would say over the last um, 10 years has been a, a pretty massive change in how companies are engaging on this topic. There were definitely some early leaders who um, came out in front of, uh, of the guiding principles and really were supportive of it. So the Coca-Colas of the world, Microsofts of the world. Um, but we're starting to see a lot of company names pop up in our inbox uh, where we don't necessarily know the brand right away. And that, I think, really speaks to the fact that this is becoming much more of a mainstream expectation for companies. Um, it's not just the big names that are getting pressure and getting attention on it. Um, but we're starting to see smaller players who recognize the real, real value in being proactive around surfacing potential human rights risks and ethical challenges in order to more effectively anticipate them and then develop strategies to mitigate them. I would also say we're starting to see a lot more talk about mandatory human rights due diligence and regulation, especially coming out of Europe, that would impact any company or almost any company operating in Europe. Um, and so you're starting to see this become a much more kind of priority issue in terms of compliance efforts inside of a company. And the final piece I would say that's been really fascinating, I think, for us to watch, especially here in the U.S., is that these, for lack of a better term, social justice or social impact initiatives that are front and, and center for so many individuals and communities and news reports are also front and center for so many CEOs and executives. And so these issues that may have been at one point able to be siloed within a CSR department or a small um, unit within the business are now really elevated and are becoming key points that um, CEOs need to be fluent in and general counsels need to have had uh, an opportunity to weigh in. And so the, the issues um, that we focus on have become um, really core to how companies run their business. And that's been a really exciting and, and welcome change. So what do you think is driving that change? Is it the regulation? Is it the shifting norms? Is it all of the above? And I'd love for both of you to weigh in on that. Yeah, I, I think it's all of the above as is probably the easiest answer. I think we cannot understate the importance of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and in 2011 in really driving this change. Uh, they, they replaced uh, decades right, of, of very contentious discussion and, and debate about uh, how to even define corporate responsibility for human rights. And with, uh, even, even though they're, uh, they're, there's criticism of the guiding principles now, they still represent a pretty universal consensus 
consensus on that question, on how we define corporate responsibility. And that clarity made it feel safer for companies to start adopting human rights language and human rights frameworks. But to go back to the all of the above answer, we did a study uh, last year together with Humanity United to determine exactly that question. What, What motivates companies to address human rights risk. This was particular to um, human trafficking in their supply chains. And the answer that we saw in that survey of um, essentially corporate responsibility managers was a real range from regulatory compliance to investor demands and to uh, what one very high ranking issue was enterprise customer expectations of other companies demanding this from your company. And and then of course, employees and, and consumers as well. The connecting thread through all of those is the UN guiding principles and this shared language of what exactly companies should be doing to address their human rights risks. Thank you for that, Ferris. And I'm really happy that you keep emphasizing the UN guiding principles because often since they are a voluntary framework, there's a lot of cynicism as to how effective that they've been. But just, you know, in my discussions with corporate executives and, you know, experts like you, it's been encouraging to see how much progress has been made. In 2011, it really wasn't that long ago. Exactly. And I I think it's any standard, right, has direct impacts and indirect impacts. And I think we often tend to focus on the direct impact with voluntary standards and then question kind of their effectiveness because they can't directly force companies to do the right thing and to do human rights due diligence. They have caused companies to be much more comfortable with the human rights framework, um, which is already kind of a, a big step forward, and leading companies doing proactive human rights due diligence and actually acting on their findings. But the indirect impact, I think, is just as important, right, where you see other standards um, ad- uh, adapting to the guiding principles, like the UN Global Compact and the IFC performance standards and other voluntary or maybe kind of voluntary towards binding standards, all aligning around this language. And that that then leads to another indirect impact where the soft law becomes harder and harder. And now um, we see uh, regulation um, in different, either on different issues or now in the EU, right, uh, directive on mandatory due diligence, essentially taking the UN guiding principles and making them binding law in, in countries that are very significant operating countries for most large multinational companies. So I'd like to turn to Chloe and ask from your vantage point, is this change accelerating or do you think it's reached a plateau? Because of course, you know, given that we're in a global pandemic and resourcing human rights due diligence, you know, can be uh, too expensive for companies that are cutting costs. Some assume that companies are scaling back. Is that what you're seeing? It's interesting that you asked that. And I think Ferris and I have both been waiting for that to happen because we probably assumed the same, but we're actually seeing the reverse, which is that companies are doubling down on these efforts, I think for a couple of reasons, but one of them is that um, the pandemic makes all of these issues more salient and more important for companies to invest in and support. And so there's a recognition, I think, for companies to manage their way through the pandemic in a responsible and rights compatible way. And there's demands um, internally from from 
um, employees externally from customers and then just the broader ecosystem within which they're living and, and working and a real need for companies to be contributing to, to solutions. Um, so we've actually seen an uptick in, in requests from companies uh, all over the globe to try and really help them think through how to manage these issues in the pandemic, but also have this not just be a one-time blip where all of these issues bubble up to the surface and there's a clear recognition of their value right now, but actually embedded in the company so this becomes core to the way that they manage uh, their business moving forward. Well, thank you for that. And I'd like to turn uh, in a moment to, you know, how companies can embed human rights into business strategy and an overview of some of the best practices. But before I do, I can't help myself but ask a question, which is visibility into supply chains. So it, have you seen that companies that resourced supply chain oversight for business and human rights reasons before the pandemic have fared better financially after the pandemic just because they had that visibility and they're able to ensure their business continuity? I've heard anecdotal accounts of that and I'd love to ask um, the experts. Yeah, I, I, um, I don't have any kind of hard evidence one way or another. So I, I think I would probably follow what you've heard. I think what we've seen in some of the companies that we've worked with is in very particular aspects of their supply chain, the, the impact of the pandemic being greater than in others. As one example, many of the technology companies who rely on content moderators and, and many of them in the Philippines as contract workers, the, the challenge of, um, of then having to suddenly change what is a business critical um, uh, aspect of their um, operations, right, to keep internet platforms safe, try to move that to a remote work relation, for example, it has been a challenge. Whereas I think the impact in other sectors like apparel, footwear, and toy has been, I think, equally significant, but maybe met with a more mature and, and built over the long term uh, model that, that maybe could, could more easily uh, adapt uh, in the moment because it's also kind of a very fast moving sector anyway. I know that doesn't kind of directly answer the question, but yeah, we, we haven't seen any uh, specific evidence on that. No, that's interesting. It is, you know, it is very sector specific. And, and I know that you're both experts in doing work with respect to human rights and technology. And I'm excited to get into a couple of case studies. But before I do, I'd just like to frame at a high level, what are some best practices, some innovative practices that companies have implemented to address forced labor in their supply chains? I can take that one as well. It definitely, I think, is worth confirming that that is one of the most salient human rights risks for most companies, actually, and has kind of risen to the surface of a lot of companies um, and to the top of a, a lot of companies' agendas and, and kind of lists of priorities. So that is good to see because it's a very it's a very urgent and a very severe issue that in 2020 shouldn't be as widespread as it is. We have seen some innovative approaches, mostly kind of investments in and piloting of new technologies uh, and looking at um, uh, essentially building more of a direct line of communication between uh, the, the company and the workers rather than going through this um, 
the, the, these several um, uh, kind of middlemen of, uh, of auditors and, um, and uh, third party suppliers and so forth, where you can usually only find an issue after the fact, right? So if, if you can find a way to engage directly um, with workers um, through, uh, through technology, that's one kind of innovative practice that um, we're expecting to see uh, growth in as well. The other um, really exciting uh, development in this space is kind of the rise of um, ethical recruitment practices. Um, so recognizing that uh, if you're if a, a trafficked um, individual uh, kind of arrives at your uh, supplier facility, uh, it's already too late, right? They've already been a victim of trafficking before they even hit your orbit or you have any sort of kind of relationship with them. So it's important to, um, to use the recruitment lever and um, start demanding uh, uh, ethical recruitment practices from all of your uh, labor uh, recruitment agencies, and then in some cases limiting who you do business with based on who they use for um, labor recruiting. And so uh, that can have lots of different uh, um, uh, th there's lots of different aspects to it. One to quickly mention is uh, the employer pays principle, right? So essentially abolishing any sort of employee-borne fees for um, rec the recruitment process, which um, helps address the power imbalance at least a little bit and, um, and is a good way to kind of uh, incrementally reduce the risk of trafficking. Okay, Ferris, thank you for that overview of best practices. Um, I'd like now to turn to uh, Chloe, who will uh, walk us through a um, case study on Facebook and human rights abuses on technology platforms. Great. Uh, thank you for that. And yeah, so we've been partnering with Facebook for a number of years now, um, conducting a series of country level human rights impact assessments. And these are uh, impact assessments designed to really understand the way in which a product or service or a company's operations are playing out on the ground in a specific environment. And so we've conducted um, two that we can talk about today. One is uh, a country level impact assessment in Sri Lanka and the other one is a country level impact assessment in Indonesia. And um, these looked at, these were precipitated by um, some concerns from civil society that Facebook's platform was being misused to spread hate speech and disinformation and that there were risks that these um, actions had contributed, especially in the case of Sri Lanka, to offline harm. Uh, so in uh, the Sri Lanka case in March 2018, there were rumors that um, some uh, Muslim shop owners in Sri Lanka had placed um, some uh, pills in the food of their customers to reduce fertility among um, the, the, the Buddhist majority. And these uh, were false stories, uh, but there was a video that had been recorded with an accusation against one specific shop owner, and that video went viral on Facebook. Um, and so we were brought in after that incident to really try and get a, a sense of what was the context in the country and how was Facebook's platform specifically contributing to that um, kind of ecosystem level risk. And so we spent um, 
two weeks or so in country. We went there twice, um, once with Facebook to do a series of interviews with stakeholders and then watch um, a number of focus groups with uh, Facebook users across the country. So we sat in on about 150 participant focus groups to really hear directly from um, individuals across the country how they were using the platform, what they were seeing on the platform and so on. And then we returned um, about a month later to do a series of stakeholder interviews and really found that the platform had been misused in ways that were infringing on the rights of especially vulnerable groups. Um, so we looked specifically at the way in which the platform was impacting on religious minorities, especially around these rumors and misinformation that was resulting in offline harm. So in the case of the restaurateur, um, he was attacked and, and businesses that were run by um, Muslim community members were burned. But we also found a, a range of other impacts, including impacts on women, uh, cyber violence, sexual harassment online, um, upskirting or creep shops being shared, revenge porn. Uh, we saw a number of impacts on children. These, this is definitely not unique to the, the country context in Sri Lanka or in Indonesia, um, but Facebook being used to groom children and to share sexually explicit photos. Uh, we saw impacts on the LGBT community, including um, the way in which the platform was being used to bully and harass, and in some cases even to out individuals who were not public about, um, about their, uh, their uh, sexual orientation. And then finally, impacts on human rights defenders. So looking at the way in which the platform was being used um, by certain groups to track and to bully human rights defenders, but also how the platform was being used by government officials um, to spy on dissidents and also to request information from Facebook related to um, uh, specific user activity. So we were able to really get a, a, a holistic sense of the ways in which the platform was being misused in Sri Lanka and in Indonesia. And what we really wanted to do once we had an overview of the key risks was understand, well, what is Facebook's responsibility for these risks? And based on that level of responsibility, what should they be doing to try to mitigate the risks? And um, we're lucky that the guiding principles are out there and they provide us with a framework to really think through um, how to kind of parse out responsibility. And we looked at four key indicators. The first was whether the company had done anything to incentivize the harm that occurred. The second was to see if the company had facilitated the harm in any way. The third was the degree to which the company failed to conduct human rights due diligence and the degree or extent to which the company should have known about the, the risks that were present. And so we applied this, this framework to get a sense of are these impacts that companies just link to by virtue of being in Sri Lanka? Or are there things the company can do to mitigate the risk? So additional due diligence steps or um, additional engagement with civil society actors to understand what the risks are. And based on that analysis came up with a series of recommendations that kind of uh, span the whole gamut from improving corporate level accountability to addressing the, the root causes of many of the, the challenges that we were seeing in the, in the country. What's been really exciting for us in this work is the degree to which the findings and the recommendations of these country level impact assessments have really been used to um, affect the way Facebook 
deals with these issues at a global level. So a lot of our recommendations supported policy developments that impact every user across Facebook um, today. So really looking, for example, at the way in which uh, the company should be policing content that can result in offline harm that now is in place all over the world. So wherever there may be risks to um, individuals, to communities um, due to online engagement, Facebook now has tools and resources to better, um, to better moderate that content, recognizing the importance not, of ju not just of protecting freedom of expression, but also protecting other rights, many of which occur in the offline world. So the rights to non-discrimination, the right to security of persons, and so on. No, that that's incredible, and just the impact that that you've had, you know, influencing um, such an impactful company um, is, is very, very impressive. I guess my only question is, in going through that process, what surprised you the most? Um, go, oh, good question. I well, maybe I'll say two things. One. I think Ferris and I, uh, and I don't mean to put words in his mouth, so please uh, debate, debate me as you do in the office all the time, but I think we're both surprised at the degree to which Facebook has become such a core part of the public square in so many countries and the kind of additional pressures and responsibility that entails. Um, both on the free expression side, where you can make a very strong case for the company really privileging free expression over other rights, as well as from the other side where, no, this is the public square and this is incredibly powerful. And so it actually has outsized impacts um, when free expression is, is kind of allowed to um, go above and beyond the expectations of the international human rights standards. So I'd say that's one thing. Uh, the second thing I would say is that we've been doing these now since 2018. Um, and I think there was a real inflection point for the company uh, in, kind of between 2016 and 2018. So after the US presidential elections here, um, and then kind of a series of other things that happened globally in, in a number of countries where they were operating, a real kind of decision to staff up in ways to help the company understand what the risks of its platforms were, especially in high risk countries. Uh, these are a bunch of technology executives who may not have been working with local civil society in Myanmar or Sri Lanka or Zimbabwe. Um, and so they really staffed up in that sense. And so it's been really exciting to see um, how much the, the company is able to take these, this new expertise that they're bringing in and have that inform their policies moving forward. Thank you so much, Chloe, for sharing that uh, incredibly interesting and impactful example with us. I'd like to move on to our second and last case study on Microsoft. Yeah, happy to share a bit um, more about our work uh, with Microsoft. Amelia, they, they've been one of our first clients and, and we've been working with them now for many years on the broader human rights agenda. But the, the project I wanted to talk about a bit more is um, uh, developing the, the um, 2020 uh, vision for human rights at uh, Microsoft. Um, it's a nice kind of contrast. Um, we, as Chloe mentioned, we we work kind of in the field um, uh, with um, with our clients on kind of on the ground impacts, but we also work kind of in the boardroom on uh, corporate strategy and embedding human rights into that. And this is a good example of what that looks like. And and really, this project started with two um, kind of 
key assumptions and a question, right? And the assumptions were one, um, as a uh, one of the biggest uh, and maybe most diverse uh, technology companies uh, out there, Microsoft understood that they um, have uh, tremendous impact on, on human rights. And so there's a lot of um, impact to be realized um, if you effectively minimize uh, human rights risks and maximize the opportunities for positive impact. Um, the other assumption was that um, the company really wanted to lead on this. This is a topic that is um, hugely important uh, to the company, to the company's leadership. And so um, just being kind of uh, in a in compliance mode or um, or middle of the pack um, wasn't enough. I think that there was a real desire not just to kind of get the get your own house in order um, from a human rights perspective, but also to help um, set the agenda and set a leadership example for other companies on uh, on human rights to bring the sector along. And uh, the way we've kind of then approached this, um, and this is where kind of the key question comes in. Uh, was uh, how do we actually um, uh, make that, uh, turn that leadership uh, ambition into a practical and implementable management system? And so uh, to develop a, a, a 2020 vision for the company, um, essentially kind of a five-year strategy um, to, um, to advance human rights. Uh, we, of course, um, did uh, a lot of internal engagement. Um, Microsoft is a kind of a, a very discussion-based uh, and, and very, very collaborative culture. Um, so uh, we spent a lot of days um, in, in Redmond and in other um, offices around the world um, having discussions with um, different functions. Uh, having um, interviews, uh, bringing in external experts um, and uh, and different stakeholders that um, work with are impacted um, by Microsoft's decision, uh, and then um, developed a, a strategy that's really built on four uh, key pillars. So um, this is how we can kind of actualize uh, the leadership ambition. Uh, the first is class leading due diligence. So this uh, means uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, assessing the company's human rights uh, impacts uh, and uh, doing so recognizing that in the technology world, this can uh, can really, um, uh, the, 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 the human rights risks can change and evolve um, very, uh, very quickly and very significantly um, even as you do the assessment so um, we've done uh, since the the launch of this this pillar of the strategy we've done a number of human rights impact assessments with Microsoft one um, to mention briefly is um, the first ever uh, human rights impact assessment of artificial intelligence um, and that then uh, led to um, other um, work um, again with the idea that this kind of human rights due diligence should be ongoing. Uh, the second pillar is rights-aware decision-making, and we've mentioned that before as a, a goal um, really for all of our clients. So this is about effectively embedding human rights considerations in all functions and all kind of decision centers of the company. And you do that through formal measures like um, a human rights statement or human rights policies, 
um, but also through informal measures, by just creating the space to have a dialogue um, in, internally um, for employees to raise issues and for those issues to be um, pursued and, um, and addressed. Uh, the third pillar is proactive engagement. So this is the realization that um, when you're talking about human rights impacts, you have to engage with uh, the people whose human rights you might be impacting. Or if that is not possible, right, if you have uh, billions of rights holders, as is the case in, in terms of Microsoft product users, um, you need to um, uh, understand who are their legitimate representatives, which human rights organizations do we engage with, and how do we build trust um, with uh, those organizations so that we can uh, make sure they, uh, they are critical friends, right, and, and constructive critics of, of the work that we do. Um, and then the fourth one uh, is transparent leadership. So this is about making sure that um, as the company advances its human rights commitments, um, it does so transparently um, and, uh, and uh, in a way that creates accountability, right? So you can go um, on uh, the Microsoft website and you can uh, create your own human rights report essentially and see you know, what are they doing on uh, the issues that are most salient to them. You can go there as a user and understand um, what, um, how is my privacy impacted in different Microsoft products and services and what um, is actually in my control and how, how can I toggle kind of my settings on and off. So it starts with that and it goes all the way to um, annual reporting and disclosures or biannual reporting in some cases on um, uh, issues like uh, law enforcement requests for user information. So transparency and through that transparency accountability, that's the, um, the fourth pillar of the, of the strategy. So that's a, a quick run through of um, a, a project that is, um, I think, a good example of how uh, we work with companies to embed and create uh, human rights management systems internally. Um, and so this was our, our 2020 vision um, with Microsoft. Ferris, thank you so much for uh, that overview of the 2020 vision. I have one question and it's about the role of the board. Can you help us understand the difference between the role of the board when it comes to overseeing a human rights strategy and the role of management? Yeah. I think great question. And um, I think uh, that the short answer would be both are not just important, but really essential for success. I think part of why um, Microsoft has been recognized as a leader in uh, human rights is, uh, is their commitment really starts at the top. Uh, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft is um, uh, one of us, so to speak. Um, uh, and, and comes uh, with a human rights background um, to the to the role and um, is a very, uh, very effective um, uh, business voice on human rights, um, both kind of internally facing and externally facing. And so that executive leadership and sponsorship we see over and over again in our projects is essential. And so when we work in a company where um, that doesn't um, where it, that isn't clear yet, our first step um, in our project work is usually help our clients identify and then um, 
uh, enable an executive sponsor for the human rights work. Um, the board, I think, equally uh, plays a role, um, and, and this is not, um, not uh, specific to human rights, but uh, in all of corporate responsibility, um, like any other meaningful and, and material aspect of a company's business, the board needs to take its oversight role seriously and um we we see that often as a sign of a company's kind of place in the maturity curve and how meaningful the board updates are um on on human rights um right um and we we're working with one company right now where we're um starting to um to uh, make this more of a two-way conversation as well. Um, so preparing um, for a little discussion with the board um, that isn't just a, okay, here's what we've done on human rights in the last quarter, but involves them actually in the process of a human rights impact assessment to get their input and perspective. And I think that's important because there, that's maybe an underutilized role that the board can play when you have um, usually uh, executives who have many years or decades of experience in other sectors and could bring those sectors experiences and, and lessons to um, the board that they're serving on, um, there would be so much gain from companies then having more of a, I guess, more of a preview, for example, of what can go wrong if you don't um, effectively assess and address your human rights impact. So I think that's how I would see the, the two roles. And again, I think both are crucially important for um, effectively embedding human rights in your business. Thank you, Ferris. So, so if I'm hearing you right, sort of the, the executive uh, team's role is leadership, tone at the top, and also uh, implementing the strategy on uh, human rights. And the board's role is really a risk oversight role. What I'm hearing is that the way that the board fulfills its oversight duty is by asking questions and by ensuring that there's a dialogue with uh, the relevant internal stakeholders who actually have the human rights information um, to share with the board. I think so. And, and when I think about kind of our briefing, the briefings that we've uh, given to um, uh, either individual board members or um, entire boards of directors and at our clients, um, often I think to enable uh, the board to play that oversight role effectively, you need to kind of help them ma make the connection and draw the link to what they understand to be uh, material business risks and the human rights framework. Um, often, um, we've, we've had um, not too long ago, a call with one board member that was specifically just about making that connection and, and saying, okay, the issues that you are aware of, whether it's uh, operational risk related to um, to uh, protests against the company or the security of the supply chain. Here is how those issues are human rights issues. And this is what we mean when we say the business responsibility for human rights and, and why that is uh, not, um, not the same, but related to the government's responsibility and, and what, uh, what you kind of have in your head as, oh, this is all about governments and, and torture and political prisoners. So that kind of education is critical for the board to um, be able to play its role um, of, uh, of oversight and uh, kind of risk, uh, yeah, risk mitigation effectively. Thank you for that, Ferris. So, so um, 
I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests a magic wand and a crystal ball. And since we have two uh, wonderful guests today, I'll give each of you a magic wand. So Chloe, I'll give you your magic wand first. If you can change anything about the way that companies approach uh, human rights, what would that be? Good question. I think I would want it to be less of a siloed issue and more core to business. So in the same way that they ask questions around um, what's our likelihood of succeeding in this market, they should also ask what's the likelihood of our product or service negatively impacting human rights and what can we do about that? Okay, that's great. Ferris, what would you do with your magic wand? Oh yeah, I would. Um, uh, I would use it to um, uh, shift their mindset from short term uh, to long term. And I think the the kind of short term thinking, and we're starting to see that kind of uh, break up a bit finally. But it, it's one of the main kind of barriers to um, to effective integration of of human rights. Where um, in the short term, often uh, addressing your human rights risks has a cost, right? And, um, and uh, the benefits of, uh, of investing in human rights are significant, but they are often realized over time, definitely not a quarter by quarter. And, um, and uh, moving business generally to a more long-term mindset, um, I think is, is really critical for this agenda to continue to take hold, um, as is the case for the, the E and the G in, in ESG as well. I couldn't agree with you more um, about, uh, I wish I could give you both magic wands. Um, <laughs> Wait, we're not actually getting a magic no, wand? No, I'm sorry. I can do many things, but, um, but now, Ferris, I'll give you the crystal ball first. Where do you think we're headed? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things kind of looking into the future. I think um, on business and human rights, I would say one um, one aspect of that future is that increasingly uh, companies will be focusing on domestic issues when um, traditionally uh, they thought of human rights and the business and human rights uh, field as focused primarily on overseas issues in, in the supply chain or with repressive regimes. I think what we've seen in 2020 is more of a realization that these issues can hit really close to home and that um, uh, human rights issues are social justice issues and um, that uh, there's a lot you can do um, to advance your own human rights commitments and to demonstrate leadership on human rights in just in your own backyard. So I think um, maybe that's one that I'll, I'll use uh, my crystal ball for. Thank you so much. And Chloe, where do you see us headed with respect to business and human rights? Yeah, I think I'll go back to the beginning of this conversation around the mandatory human rights due diligence and increasing expectations from states um, that companies actually walk the talk. Um, and seek to understand the ways in which their operations, products, and services impact human rights. So I think it's an exciting time that 10 years after the guiding principles were first uh, launched, we are able to really see the way in which states have taken this mantle and, and are really moving it forward. Terrific. Well, thank you so much to, to both of you for sharing your insights with us today. Of course. Thanks for having us. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. 
Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.